Are you satisfied with your understanding of sustainability? If not, like me, imagine a journey together, a pluralistic one, with innovators, startup, academia, NGO, all together looking for solution to the greatest challenge of our time. I'm Samuel Ettini, and this is The Sustainability Journey. Thank you so much, and we are here for a wonderful episode again. I'm thrilled to discuss something that now is in the mouth of everybody, carbon, what it is, what is it? And we do it with a change maker, somebody that is putting carbon technology, farmers and soil all together with this wonderful company called Bumitra. We are pleased to have here Adit Murti, the founder and CEO. Thank you, Adit, for being here. Yeah, thank you for having me. Adit, I mean, when I saw your impressive CV, I was like, wow, you have been in Caltech, you've been in Stanford, and now you are retransforming the carbon space. But the usual question is like, who is Adit? How you came out about all this space? Where are you coming from? As you currently mentioned, I came from the very technical side to begin with, having been at Caltech and Stanford. But it was during that time, about like six or seven years ago now, I was traveling through a small village in South India, actually. And when I was traveling through that village, I saw a funeral procession. A farmer had committed suicide, actually. That year, the monsoon rains had failed, and along with it, the crop yields. And as a result, this farmer took his own life because he did not see a proper way forward with the yields failing, and he had debts to repay and so on. And that got me thinking, due to climate change, these things are only becoming more and more common as droughts become more common and also severe flooding becomes common. The extremes become more common. Is there anything that farmers can do to fight back, especially with modern technology, all of the novel 21st century technology that we have? Is there anything that they can do to fight back? And that's how we got started at Bumitra. Uh, it was from that concept. And then I tied it over to what I was familiar with and what my skill sets were. And then we got started at Bumitra using satellites and AI to derive insights about land. And that eventually transitioned into soils and soil carbon uh, specifically. Because now in this current journey with the soil carbon, so we've been doing soil carbon and carbon removal projects specifically for about three years now. And that before that, we were providing more of an advisory service to farmers around moisture, nutrients, how they grow more with less. But over the past three years or so is when we have actually transitioned to not just asking farmers to pay us for receiving a service, but rather we are paying the farmer uh, to do improved practices and do and also receive the services and improve what they are doing. So the model itself is shifted because in my sustainability journey, one important thing for me was has been, always been, how do we organize systems and infrastructure so that we can actually reach every single farmer worldwide and have impact on a gigaton scale? To have impact at that scale and to reach every single farmer worldwide, that's what has always been interesting to me. Because there's 500 million farmers around the world. How do we reach all of them in a scalable manner and in a manner that's achievable within this decade? Because any climate action in this decade is much more important than climate action you do in, in subsequent decades. Because every adaptation or carbon removal you do in this decade is more valuable uh, than anything that you do in the future, just from a discounting perspective. So that's why things have to be done right now. We can't wait 100 years for everyone to adapt and uh, everyone to sequester carbon. 
things have to be done right. It's again coming, you know, from a personal experience, dramatic experience, you really see how you can impact farmers. And I really like your worldwide vision, uh, coupling technology and carbon. Now carbon has become the word of the talk of the day. Everybody is discussing with carbon. Maybe before going to, to go and discuss and boom it, I'm really interested, you know, for the people, the lay people like us that are listening to the podcast, can you give out in a nutshell, the carbon market, what it is, what are the challenges, the opportunities? Yeah, so in a nutshell, carbon markets are a mechanism for achieving efficient decarbonization and efficient holistic decrease in humanity's emissions uh, overall. The markets are a well-suited mechanism, given the right structures are put into place. Markets, some of our listeners here who are well-versed in economics might know, when these proper structures are put in place, markets are an efficient way to arrive at uh, uh, an outcome where overall costs are minimized and value is maximized across a variety of different scenarios. So these carbon markets are a mechanism for humanity to more efficiently reduce its carbon footprint uh, over time. Now, of course, there's different kinds of markets going on in the carbon world, such as there's voluntary carbon markets where uh, corporations make voluntary goals and then they buy carbon credits as part of meeting those voluntary goals in the sustainability story that they tell their stakeholders and their and their shareholders and their employees and everyone. Then there's also compliance carbon markets, which are becoming a much, much larger thing with not only with uh, regional agreements, but also international agreements like the EU's ETS, California's uh, cap and trade, and all those are compliance programs, which have a different set of rules determined by governments. And also, of course, the Paris Agreement establishes a different kind of compliance regime. So those exist. Also, there's voluntary markets where companies may voluntarily buy credits. All of those are different mechanisms, but in a nutshell, it's the same thing. It's about how do we enable various kinds of mitigation uh, to happen for the climate challenge and for it to happen at uh, starting with the lowest hanging fruit and then moving upwards so that we can go most efficiently in this journey. And, and thank you so much for this explanation. I know now we can understand a bit more and it's really clear. And now you have mentioned before, Bumitra, how you are using within the space, and I'm sure it's more on the voluntary side, how you are, you are using technology and carbon? Are you coupling them together? Yeah. So it, as you currently said, most of our work today is on the voluntary side. Uh, we are exploring some compliance projects as well, but it is mostly on the voluntary side. And in this voluntary side, what we at Boomter actually enable is uh, we do a variety of things starting from the farmer all the way to the buyer of the credits. So alongside several of our different partners, which I'll say a bit more about in a moment, we work with farmers in large numbers. And with these farmers, we encourage them to do improved agricultural practices that enable them to build up soil carbon levels, the carbon levels in the soil. The carbon, uh, you can think of it like uh, things such as humus even, uh, starting with that. So that's part of soil organic carbon, soil organic matter. So we work with farmers to for them to adopt improved practices. And these practices include things like uh, conservation agriculture, regenerative agriculture, sustainable agriculture. There's many synonyms for them, include practices like reduced tillage, crop residue management, manuring, composting, 
those sustainable agriculture, regenerative agriculture, conservation agriculture practices that you've heard of, uh, these practices enable soils to increase in their carbon levels. What has actually happened in practice is that plants are growing efficiently, and then we have enabled some of that carbon that plants have captured as part of their photosynthesis to end up in the ground and be stored in the ground. That is what increasing soil carbon is actually doing, is we are making sure that we retain the hard work that the plants have done in the ground. So as this happens, soil carbon goes up, and as the soil carbon goes up, we are effectively, effectively, we go from end to end, we have effectively taken CO2 that was in the atmosphere, plant has absorbed it, put it into the ground, and we have kept it in the ground. So we have done some capturing of carbon there, sequestering of carbon uh, in that process, and soil carbon has gone up. Now that soil carbon has gone up, that increase in the carbon is directly proportional to what we call a carbon removal credit. Uh, so that those are counted in tons. So for example, in one year from doing such a practice, maybe the farmer generates like one to two or three tons of uh, carbon sequestration per year or so. That carbon, we use satellites in AI. We have proprietary AI along with a vast amount of satellite data at Bumitra that we use to measure that soil carbon level. We are, we are able to directly measure with our AI the soil carbon level at T equals zero, which could be the starting point when the farmer adopts a practice. And then we might come back after like T equals one year or two years or three years or whatever interval, and then see what has been the change in soil carbon. So we see the soil carbon at T equals zero and the soil carbon at T equals two. The difference is directly proportional to the uh, carbon, the carbon removal credit. And then of course we have to go through a standards uh, process. So every single credit that Bumitra has in its pipeline or issues is considered a third-party certified internationally recognized credit. So what that means is we have to go through a third-party audit process with a reputed international standards body that everyone accepts as a valid standards body for carbon credits. In our case, for example, there would be Vera. Uh, if you go to the Vera registry, for example, you can search Bumitra and see we have six projects globally which I'll get into our projects in a bit, a bit later in the in, in the in in this talk. But we have six, uh, the, across these six projects, they're all following the VERA standard, which means that VERA is the standards body that has created a, an array of methodologies of how you can do carbon credits. One of them is also soil carbon, and they provide the certification mechanism, and they are international nonprofit that is internationally recognized for uh, providing a valid standard for carbon credits. Of course, there's occasionally there's various media uh, questions that arise, which we'll get into the media questions a bit later. Uh, but for example, like there, there's a VERA process, there's a third party auditor that comes uh, who is completely unrelated to us, who comes and uh, studies what happens on the ground. They check whatever is happening and then they say that the, all the calculations and the groundwork is right. And then we have credits. And those credits, we then go to Fortune 500 companies for the most part today though we are expanding to smaller companies as well, and provide these credits to them for them to meet their sustainability goals and uh, for them to meet whatever targets that they've set from the ESG perspective, uh, and they buy these credits. So they buy these credits from us for a given price. And one of the fundamental values that we have in Bumitra, which is the final piece of connecting back, is that the farmers or ranchers or the people actually doing the carbon removal be it the farmers or ranchers, 
they get the majority of every single carbon credit. There is a fundamental value for us that they must get the majority because they're the, they're the ones doing the hard work of uh, doing everything on the ground. Then our partners on the ground, which often include local communities supporting these farmers and ranchers, they also get a percentage of the credit. So the people on the ground plus the farmers and ranchers together, they get the vast majority of the carbon credit with us. At Bomitra, since, of course, we are a business that's trying to grow to the entire world, we, of course, take a percentage of that credit. But overall, the vast majority is going to the farmers and the uh, ranchers and the local communities. And Bomitra makes a percentage for connecting these pieces, deploying our technology and providing the uh, advisory and systems to actually make this happen. So that's end-to-end uh, -end of how the soil carbon measurement with satellites and AI works and how it connects back to generating carbon credits. Another small thing which we also do is using the same satellites in AI, we also measure nutrient levels and moisture levels in a similar fashion. Those are used for providing advisory to the farmers, either by us through our, our digital interfaces or through our partners on the ground as well. They provide advisory to the farmers for them to do better. So our technology kind of helps farmers to not only implement what they're doing, but also monitor what they're doing so that we can turn it into carbon credits from end to end and generate and provide the maximal value back to the farmers. Very interesting. And thank you for the comprehensive and very clear explanation. Just, and I really like the last bit about the farmers because I've been in contact with many projects and usually this is one of the, the elephants we will discuss. And it's really how you can unlock the benefits of the carbon market and reaching really the people that are suffering the most and also the ones that are doing the techniques. Can you describe a bit some of the impacts and the milestone reach? And then I have an additional question that is just a lump. If you can quantify, let us say maybe 60-40, or is it proprietary? You can dis disclose that, or it varies by projects, the proportion to the farmers and Bumitra? Uh, right, yeah. So I'll start there. It actually does vary by project because some projects have different complexity. I don't think Bumitra has ever done 40% because we also include the uh, partner percentage there. So we have many partners who are helping us to work on the ground in different parts of the world, and they also support these projects that we have. Right, We have 100 plus partners uh, all around the world, and they include agribusinesses, even like uh, like a big crop nutrition companies and so on. But they also include NGOs like uh, Mexico's largest environmental NGO, Brazil's largest environmental NGO, and so on. They include major international organizations. Like in East Africa, one of our biggest partners is the World Food Programs support along with various programs that they have there, uh, such as the Farm to Market Alliance program that connects to farmers at scale. So there's many different partners that we have. Some big ones, like the World Food Program, big uh, NGOs, big crop nutrition companies. There's also a variety of more organizations that do work with having great impacts on the ground. Yeah, so there's a the variety of organizations from the really big ones to also several small ones. All of them are having great impact on the ground. Uh, following up to that, as I was mentioning, these partners, they support us in doing these things. So at the end of the day, it depends on the complexity. There are some projects that, are, that have a lot of small farmers, and then there's more complexity in dealing with smallholder farmers. There are some projects that work with medium-sized to larger farmers. There's a slightly less organizational complexity in those ones. So the percentages to farmers do vary, but they always get the majority and the farmer plus 
the ground forces of the partner, they get the vast majority uh, uh, of the credit. So in terms of overall numbers, today we are across about 5 million acres that's actually associated or enrolled with our project across these six projects that are in a more mature stage, as I mentioned earlier. There's also some more nascent projects that are not yet been uh, announced publicly that have uh, several millions more in acreage that uh, that will be associated with those. But the 5 million acres is with the uh, uh, with the current known projects that we have uh, uh, that are uh, known publicly. And across these projects, we have about 150,000 plus farmers. So most of that count obviously comes from small farmers because small farmers quickly add up to the count. However, uh, uh, so mo most of that count uh, of the farmers comes from India and now soon Kenya as well. Uh, Kenya is growing very fast in the carbon in the farmer numbers with us. Uh, it grows, yeah. The I think the fastest enrollment of farmers in the history of Bumitra has been in Kenya, actually. Yeah. And we, we look forward to maybe bringing even more. <laughs> yes, yes, exactly, exactly. Yeah, but in India, of course, we, we currently have more smaller farmers there than anywhere else. But in terms of acreage, we have most of our acreage in the Americas at the moment, because that's where the simply the farm acres tend to be larger. But that does not necessarily mean that uh, those places are always the ones that are getting more carbon credits. In fact, the smallholder farms are more intensively managed. So for an acre, they might be getting more carbon credit per acre than uh, the much larger ranches. If you've seen any uh, Western movies in those huge landscapes, that's literally some of the areas that we work in. Right? They're huge open landscapes. There, the acres are large. The carbon yield per acre is much lower. But since the acres are large, we have some uh, interesting economics going there as well. So just to summarize very quickly, we have huge uh, grassland ranching project in Mexico. We have a similar huge grassland pro uh, ranching project in uh, Brazil, Argentina, and Uruguay and the border region of those places. That's known as the Pampas grassland biome. You might be familiar with that. Then in East Africa, we have two different projects, one concerning smallholder farmers with the croplands in Kenya, and soon also in larger East Africa region. And a second one concerning uh, the grassland regions, ranging the places where the conservancies are in Kenya. In fact, I, that was in my mind also, how to, you can link conservation and carbon and also unlock that part. For sure. Many of our partners might have started out in the conservation realm, actually. And then they come with us and then they realize that this carbon finance and these carbon credits are a great pathway for them to finance conservation going into the much longer term. Because if you think about most grants and other uh, philanthropic contributions, usually many of them tend to be, many grants tend to be tied to like two, three or four or five year outcomes. But a carbon project is not that. And a conservation work, as some of your listeners might know, is not necessarily something that is to be done in two, three, four, five years. It's a long-term effort. Conservation is a long-term effort. And carbon credits are also a long-term effort. So there's kind of that sync up between those two. A uh, carbon project actually exists for at least 30 years. So for that amount of time, we have to continue to do what we do and continue to increase carbon. And as long as we continue to do that, we also get 
continue to get carbon credits and the overall system is financed. And it's really interesting to see you know, the really the big impacts. And last number before we go now to tackle some hard questions is like, how many tons have you now, you said in the last three, five years, you have you have uh, removed? Yeah. So our farmers have collectively removed more than uh, 10 million tons of uh, CO2 from the atmosphere. Our farmers and ranchers collectively across the millions of acres have collectively removed more than 10 million tons. And uh, that at the moment we have, we have also sold considerable amounts of volumes in various contracts with Fortune 500 uh, organizations. And those volumes, if you add them up, uh, the total volume sold so far would add up to several tens of millions of dollars, out of which the uh, payments to farmers and partners, they are slowly starting to trickle in, but the majority of trickles actually going to happen in uh, this year. and. Uh, and so on. So there's going to be a huge amount of transfers this year. So uh, it's going to be an interesting year for us. And it's really interesting. A question that is coming to my mind, you know, we are sometimes in the space, we are a bit carbon obsessed, but carbon, as I think, is a mean towards, you know, enhancing biodiversity, improving food security. And I'm sure, ever tried also to see maybe the, the betterment of yields for farmers that use your techniques? Or, or other type of impacts that, you know, that they might be secondary for the market, but I feel they can have also a huge impact for the life of the farmer. So when we actually go and try to establish a project, the first thing that we actually check is that the practices that we are trying to deploy here are actually aligned with what the farmers actually want to do and properly go and incentivize those. So we would never incentivize a project that was decreasing yields, for example. So we see many examples where farmers after adopting our practices immediately achieve great increases in yield. I'll actually share a picture later on that they, maybe you could share with your listeners as well about just this. Just within one or two years, yields in a small farm uh, near Nakuru in Kenya actually have like quadrupled from adopting improved uh, these improved practices. You can see the difference between their farm and their neighbor's farm, how much the yield is higher from doing these practices. Because as soil carbon increases, the fertility of the soil increases. And as a result, they're able to also grow more with the same uh, land and the same resources. That is really what can be, you know, like expanding a bit the carbon uh, narrative and also, you know, going into the food security and there was, so it's an enabler for, and I'm sure also home. Exactly. Yeah, also, you know, on the on the biodiversity side, this is more common in our grassland projects rather than the cropland projects, but we are tracking this as a fundamental thing. As the land become more better managed, there's more grass, more variety of grass that also restores more wildlife. Uh, think birds, more variety of birds. In the African continent, you think more megafauna as well, the much larger animals as well are uh, have more habitat and able to thrive more. So that's something also that's being measured and seen in our projects. And it's very, very interesting. And I know we can discuss a lot and see, but it's really, it's really fascinating the work you're doing. Thank you from carbon and now proving yields and conservation. Now I want to ask another question. We all know that a few weeks ago, some article came out discussing the validity of the carbon market and sometimes voices, they are a bit skeptical 
we have had somebody, I mean, in episode 53, we discussed how you can do better carbon management and good carbon projects. So I want to ask you this question. How would you respond to the recent debate about carbon and how we can ensure really the benefits and the work uh, that you are doing? Yeah, I think there's two topics here on the recent debate. One is around, of course, ensuring that the value reaches the communities that matter the most. A second is around, are the credits really credits? Uh, what is the quantification of those credits? On the first topic, you know, uh, there's already a lot of movement in the field towards enabling that. We have some multi-million dollar or multi-tens of millions of dollar contracts that literally stipulate in the contract itself that the majority of this must go to the farmers on the ground. So we have contracts like that that literally stipulate that in writing at this point with buyers. Of course, the action comes from the buyers, but we are also proactive at Bumitra. And from the beginning, we've been saying that even before the buyers even said anything, we've been saying that. But now what I'm saying is that for the market at large, there is this action coming from buyers themselves that they want to make sure that this happens and they want a proper audit trail to be able to show that uh, this is actually the case that is happening. That's on that side. And I think that's a good uh, movement in the right direction so that we can enable these kinds of things to be written in contract, not just with the farmers, but also from the buyer side, that uh, writing in contract and that formalization of the value going to the local communities, that's very important. Uh, coming to the quantification side. Now, the voluntary carbon markets, the carbon markets in general are not that old. However, they have been around for just a few decades. And in those few decades, science and technology has progressed very, very fast. And it, it's sometimes hard for uh, projects made a while back to suddenly adapt to the latest science and technology. Well, that's something that everyone is encouraging everyone to do these days as well. Uh, now, the, the recent criticisms that the VCM has come under are associated with how do we actually quantify the credit itself that is done there. And and, in the, and they're arising primarily from the forestry perspective and particularly what's known as Red Plus, which is avoiding deforestation through carbon finance. These Red Plus projects, uh, there have been questions of some of the projects of if they have been overcrediting because they have made an assumption about the deforestation rates in their region. But over time, the deforestation rates have actually gone down through better government policies. So does that mean that uh, some of those credits are fake because the deforestation rate, the baseline deforestation rate that they're compared to has gone down. So that means that the amount that they're avoiding is actually much lesser than what they have claimed. That, that, is, that is the criticism that arises. And the market already is moving towards approaches that will enable this to no longer be the case. And for the, one of those concepts is a dynamic performance benchmark, which is to evaluate a control site and see how well it is doing relative to the rest of the project, uh, as opposed to just coming up with a counterfactual value. And this is also similar to how Boomitra actually does all of our quantifications. And that's how it ties back to making sure that we know ourselves that our credits are real, uh, even for soil carbon. But, I, but it's relevant to all sorts of nature-based solutions, not just soil carbon, not just forestry. Uh, but basically, there's a control site that is does not have the project implement on it and we see how well that control site is doing uh, relative to the project. Uh, and then the actual credit is everything that happens beyond what that control site is doing. So that is what is known as additionality, which is another term that uh, maybe some of your listeners might be familiar with, showing that 
the project is actually achieving beyond what would normally happen through other means. So you see the control site, you see how our project is actually doing and that difference between the project and the control site, that is the real, real credit uh, that we are bringing uh, to market here. So that, that's how we address that criticism and it's, it's built into our structure actually. We avoid counterfactuals. Uh, we actually measure what's going on on the ground through these uh, control sites. And, and on the payment front, we ensure that the majority is going in and even our buyers are ensuring now that the majority is going to the communities on the ground. And it's really clear. I think it's a very concept heavy, but it was very clear and was a thorough explanation. And I'm sure also the role of technology in EI and the work you're doing with satellite and ensure even more that what you are doing, of course, it is on track. Yes. For sure, right. The satellites and AI, in the case of the soil carbon, it's an important aspect because the conventional way of doing soil carbon projects is to do soil sampling on a farm level and then take it to a lab and then have it tested. The overall cost of that can be, it depends on country, but it can be anywhere from tens of dollars to hundreds of dollars for doing that one analysis of one soil sample from one particular farm. And if you had to do that on every single farm, there's no way you could scale to the hundreds of millions of smallholders around the world. And that's where our technology comes in. Using satellites and AI, we are able to not only measure what's happening, but you're able to measure it at a 90% plus cost reduction compared to doing the soil sampling on every farm and getting it tested. And this is really important that you can see how you can coupling technology and, and the carbon, you're really enabling and unlocking value for farmers. And where do you want to go in your journey? Where do you want to take Bumitra uh, in the next maybe five or 10 years? So I, I'm finishing off with exactly what I started with at the beginning of this conversation. So we want to reach the 500 million farmers of the world as soon as possible. And by the end of this decade, our goal at Bumitra is to be at a gigaton scale in terms of carbon removals that we are achieving, a gigaton scale. Now, humanity emits like 40 gigatons every year. So gigaton is still small compared to 40 gigatons, but at least it gets to the point where you can start to move the needle on climate change in a meaningful way. And that is where we are headed. And that's where we want to be all around the world. And this is a very bold statement, but I think it's also crucial. We know that if we can manage that, uh, the data say at least you can remove the, I think nine or 10% of all what the emission that can come from soil carbon. So it's really something really important that we are, you are doing. And I want to ask you your final message that you have to the people listening. The final message they have is, it's something that a client once told me actually about nine months ago, one of our clients. He asked me, why does he always have to pay for megaton scale solutions when climate change is a gigaton scale problem? How does that make any sense at all? And the answer is, it doesn't really make much sense. If you don't have a pathway for scaling and you're sticking at a megaton scale, it's not very good uh, because uh, climate change is a gigaton scale problem. So I'd encourage all of the listeners to think in terms of gigaton scale and how we can achieve that level of adaptation or mitigation or in whatever area that you're working on associated with sustainability doesn't matter but think in terms of that scale because that's how we can have a truly meaningful impact on climate change be it on adaptation or mitigation or anything else it's been a wonderful episode full of 
the concept and we are really understood properly the incredible technology of Mitra linking artificial intelligence, satellite and soil carbon. Thank you so much. It's been a pleasure. Are you satisfied after this wonderful episode? Let's continue together our sustainability journey.